Trevor Balpin, Tim Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is actually two guests. It is the two constituent members of Fangraphs Prospect Team, both lead prospect analyst Eric Longenagin and also lead prospect analyst emeritus Kylie McDaniel. The topic of this edition of the program very much is the 2018 MLB Amateur Draft. On Friday, Longenhagen and McDaniel published the third version of their mock draft, updated with the information most uh, most currently available to them. So that was on Friday. On Monday, the draft itself begins at 7 p.m. or maybe 8 p.m. or 7 p.m. This is Sunday. This is in between. This is the day on which we both recorded this episode and on which it has been published. In what follows, we discuss the changes that have been made since version 2.0. That's the second version of the mock draft. Composed, published by Longenhagen and McDaniel. We look at some players for whom there appear to be wildly different assessments. For example, Longenhagen and McDaniel see uh, USF left-hander Shane McClanahan possibly going to the Oakland A's with the ninth overall pick. However, they eventually have him mocked at number 37 overall, a difference of 28 picks. That seems to be a large gap and suggests that possibly, again, there are different assessments of McClanahan. I ask about some other players for whom that might also be the case. Uh, we look at players who might be ripe for some sort of mechanical change, whether it be an alteration to pitching mechanics or perhaps some adjustment that might allow a batter to put greater loft in a swing. And finally, and <clears throat> we begin with this, uh, is the case of Casey Mize, the Auburn right-hander, who is the presumptive favorite to go number one overall to the Detroit Tigers. Under what circumstances, in what scenarios, might that not happen? And uh, there does appear to be one that's you know 10 to 20 percent possibility. Again, it is the draft preview. Longenhagen McDaniel begins momentarily. Before it does, it is both my privilege and my obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that appears in those electronic pages, and for a slightly less reasonable—not unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable sum—readers can also acquire an ad-free membership, which allows them to browse Fangraphs.com that the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny and distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership available at Fangraphs.com by going to that URL and then clicking around a little bit. With that advert now complete, let us move on to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Fangraphs crack prospect team providing a preview of Monday's draft. And when does it begin? Right now. Does that seem fair? Yeah, this is my Lucia's Sunday. still standing next to you. He, he said he'd stay there until you were done. I've been talking, before you got on, Kylie, I was talking to Kylie, or to Eric about my flowers, my beloved flowers, you know. And then, you know, you got you have a, a 10-month-old child. You want to take a nap. Honestly, Saturdays and Sundays are nap times. But The whole I'm day? Foregoing, no, but when he's napping, yeah. But I'm foregoing all that to provide content. To help you provide content. That's true. And I mean, we could so we could better. do it without you. Some would say better. Yeah, some would say. Some would say. Some Many scouts say. say. <laughs> <laughs> There's been rumblings. <laughs> the here's a here's a, uh, an observation I can make about your most recent mock draft. You, uh, you, Kylie, you, Eric, you published uh, mock draft version 3.0 on Friday. Um, the, the draft itself is on Monday. We're recording this on the Sunday in between. It's possible that I've mentioned this all in the introduction to the program. However, uh, just a, uh, a first observation. The very, the very first line in the Casey Mize capsule, if something happens with Mize, then we think dot, dot, dot. That it's just like, it's like one word different than how a mafioso threatens... <laughs> Someone's like, oh, it'd be terrible if something, something. happened to your, <laughs> yeah. to your pet store, <laughs> you know? I Wouldn't want to hurt your Casey Mize, but you kind of yeah. leaving me a lot of options. What could, so, but what, uh, what could happen to Casey Mize? I mean, are, are we just talking like run-of-the-mill pitcher type things? Well, he pitched yesterday, and so part of that is did he get hurt yesterday, which as far as I know, he did not. So that, did that was not. one, yeah, that was one part of it. And then I guess the other part would be... Though he was pitching in the rain for much of yesterday. 
Yeah, I mean, you can't. You gotta like really wring out those arms when they get covered in rain because you don't want them to get moldy. Um, but then the other part would be just sort of. Um, I wish we had a producer for this episode because I would inform <laughs> Dylan Higgins to excise that right out like a cyst. Yeah, <laughs> like a benign tumor. Maybe this part too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the other part would be if his uh, again, this is sort of a, an amorphous thing to try to quantify. But if his bonus demands get in such a place that they become, uh, I don't know, to where to where they are higher than Detroit's willingness to pay in conjunction with another viable option, we think Joey Bart becoming a little more palatable to, palatable to play to pay. Um, then that could sort of shift things, but we set the odds of that at, you know, I think we said 5 to 10%. It's very unlikely, but possible. So what, so if I, uh, if this um, random internet page that I've, to which I've pointed my browser is correct, the this, this slot value f- for that first pick is about, um, is a little over $8 million, is that right? Yeah. Is that, I mean, is that, is he going to... Is he going to want more than eight million, or would you say Detroit does, just doesn't think he's that, and uh, their plan would be to to um, to give him an underslot bonus so they could sign someone else? Some somewhere I think else? it's I think it's very likely that Mize ends up getting a bonus somewhere in the middle to upper sevens, mm-hmm. regardless of where he if he ends up goes a one or three, which we sort of outlined as the two scenarios, and because Joey Bart will definitely go one or two. He's probably asking for full slot at two, which is seven point four nine. So mm-hmm. I would guess he goes anywhere from seven four to seven seven, depending on if he goes one or two, roughly speaking. Okay. I mean, these are right. obviously sort of guesses, but something like that. So it sounds like Bart and Mize get, both get pretty comparable money. And then I would guess three on down, they might all be below slot, just you know, to varying amounts. Maybe just a hundred thousand for one, and then maybe a million or two for ones below that. Now you said that because there, there's this less likely alternate scenario that you discuss uh, in the most recent mock draft is the idea that there's like a whatever like a ten to twenty percent chance that Detroit doesn't want to pay seven to eight million dollars for Casey Mize. Yeah, the the issue with that is if Joey Bart would have gone fourth or fifth if he doesn't go first, then he would price himself a million dollars less than we think he is. And so he then becomes a viable option if they decide that million dollars can really go to work for them in later picks. And then they have Barton Mize close enough that that million dollars is a big difference. But because they're seen as one and two on the boards of the first and second pick picking teams, I think their prices are going to be very similar. And if they're very similar, it's it seems pretty clear that everyone thinks they prefer Mize. So that's why we we think it's you know 10% or less that they do this but if Bart's price was a million dollars less it might be 60-40 that they take my it would be significantly higher there's a lot of different little things contributing to the situation that might altogether cause Detroit to move on like Mize's agent is relatively small and advisor i believe you mean yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's advising the calls that Casey Mize is making on behalf of himself. Like, they'd have to be scared of Mize's medical stuff. They'd have to be scared of negotiating with an agent they might not have a relationship with. Certainly something, you know, for something this high profile. And, you know, they'd have to be turned off by how Mize's timeline to the big leagues doesn't really line up with a full-scale rebuild in Detroit, which they're going to have to undergo at some point like he's going to be on an island on his own in the big leagues in two years for them without a whole lot of help like does he make sense it's it's a whole lot of stuff like that in addition to the uh you know the phillies potentially having this incentive to stack the board in this way where they can get a guy who does line up with you know their mortgage some other part of their draft to get this guy who fits them and their rebuild like a glove and is also you know, probably the best guy in the draft. Yeah. Now, obviously, the Tigers are better now, or at least well, they're not better at the major league level, but they're but they're better prepared for the future than they were a year or two ago, right? Just trades, and I think probably doing well, decently well in the draft, um, and the departure of Dave Dombrowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, what is the what is uh, what is the realistic timeline? I mean, they're, most of their pieces are in, like, younger guys in double A or in high A. So it would be, like, presumably two years for those guys to show up and then another year to sort of 
um, you know, turn sort into of sort of, of yeah, consistent everyday pieces. And then hopefully by then they've sort of gotten rid of all the bad contracts and older players so that they, they can then, you know, feel comfortable to add additional pieces. So, I mean, it would seem three years to be, you know, it, at a sustainable 500 team kind of within striking distance and then probably more like five years to be like, you know, in an aggressive spot where they can start doing stuff. And so realistically, a high school player, you know, an advanced one that'll move a little quicker than most other high school players probably fits that timetable better to come up right when they're going to be good. But it's not like you're looking a, a gift pitcher in the face and saying, well, you're going to be up too soon and you're going to be too good too fast. We don't like that. Like you, you just kind of mm-hmm. deal with it. Right. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this. This is this is slightly. It, it is not exactly relevant to the draft, but it, it does kind of provide some context as to where certain organizations are. I suppose I was talking with Travis Ochick about the Blue Jays recently, um, and the Blue Jays, just like given where they are, uh, both in terms of like a larger competitive window and also, I mean, their place in the at least they've lost a bunch of games recently. They're probably going to be trading uh, Josh Donaldson and Jay Happ, if not others. I don't necessarily think that they would have designs on competing next year. And I was just thinking about, cause they happen to be playing the Tigers over the weekend. And so I was thinking about the differences between those two clubs. Like, will the Blue Jays, will the Blue Jays look like the Tigers next year? Will they sink? Will they fall that far? Or just because they have so much talent at double A, does it not matter? I mean, or are they, they sort of have a floor of competitiveness in them. Yeah. I mean, the Blue Jays specifically with, um, Bobachet and Vlad Guerrero Jr. at Double A, and uh, Ryan Barucki is is close to being ready, and so is Danny Jansen and TJ Zoik, and there's yeah, there's more minor league help coming sooner for Toronto than there is for uh, Detroit. I mean, Detroit, I think Heimer Candelario and like Nick Castellanos are long term. They're like viable long term pieces. I don't know, maybe one of Nico Goodrum and Jacoby Jones turns into something um uh Kristen Stewart's almost ready they you know like Bo Burrows is at double a and he's okay and but and like, I would say not- there's there's ways for these rebuilds to go uh on different timetables than these sort of prospect dudes like us would say they will like obviously like Milwaukee looked like they were going to go into a full rebuild and then mm. they made a couple nice trades and a couple minor league free agents and sort of fringe guys turned into assets and they just sort of managed things well and then signed Eric Timms and it's like Oh yeah, no, we just sort of skipped that whole bottoming out thing. Like a couple teams have done that too. You just it's, you can't always predict who it's going to be. I don't think, from what I know of the guys with Milwaukee, they even thought that was going to happen. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess they what I mean some some guys developed maybe um, in ways they hadn't anticipated, and then and then Eric Thames, I guess to some degree fell in their lap maybe. And well, yeah, it seems like are too. And it seems like the Braves, the Braves have, uh, they thought this year would be the year when all of the prospects got up and maybe started playing some, and they've all been a little, you know, the ones that have come up have been a little better than expected. And then, you know, Soroka gets hurt. It's like, oh, we'll call Freed and Gohara. Like, they had enough of them that you can kind of paper over whichever ones aren't doing well. And so, obviously, if you have, like, Vlad and Bichette come up and be five-win players, that can, like, speed everything up. But if they come up and they're, you know, one-win players for a year or two and get injured and have a little bit more swing and miss issues and are trying to dial their swing in, then that kind of slows the whole thing down because the whole the whole point of a rebuild is you have to basically create a couple five-win players because you can't buy them on the free agent market. And so if you don't have those, then even if everything else is in place, it's going to take a couple of years to, um, you know, go get those uh, supplementary pieces to get there or to find out how to make them in your own farm system. So it, it covers a multitude of sins when you have like those two guys coming up if they have a chance to be those sorts of instant impact sort of all-star type guys okay uh back to the draft which is again is occurring tomorrow uh what are we, just i mean at a very basic level what are the what are the uh, the greatest changes between version 3.0 and 2.0 which i guess is another way of saying um you know how have players moved in, in the meantime i mean was that a couple weeks or so was that the time elapsed between the two yeah, something like that. Uh, there's yeah. a couple things in the top ten. I mean, we discussed the whole Mize scenario that is now a little more clear if he slides where he'll go and what the odds will be and who would be the benefactor and things like that. Uh, we shipped Jared Kalenic at six. It sounds like there's there's multiple spots in the top ten where we won't like call out names of executives, but there are clear power struggles uh, or a guy who can overrule the whole room with his power and say, yeah, you guys all want to draft this guy, but we're going to draft that guy. Uh, yeah. Oh, sp- by the way, th- it's only two lines. 
But you say with regard to the White Sox entry and the possible pick of Brady Singer, we think there's a split in the room between Singer and Nick Madrigal, but we think the more decorated people in the room will lean this way. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a rich that's a rich sentence. Yeah, as I say, it's, there's somebody said I think it was on Twitter like three thousand words and only two lines on the White Sox. I was like, ah, those two lines say a lot of things that I'm pretty <laughs> sure you're not reading anywhere else. But we could call out names, but I think you can read that and kind of guess who's who. No, let's call it. Let's call out. <laughs> <the names. laughs> All right. So, who is in the draft room that apparently would have an opinion that he would want to be heard that outranks everybody? All right. There, there's your clue. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then who is everyone else? <laughs> right. Well. So, so we're siding with the guy that has the power. We'll exercise that power. He that's, man. That's the yeah. That's the gamble we're taking. And then at six I with heard. the Mets, uh, there, I wouldn't say there's a split in the room. But there are two factions. Uh, mm-hmm. One is baseball people, and another is a rich idiot. Um, <laughs> and there's often been a disconnect between what these two sides want. <laughs> and one of those sides we're projecting to be able to make this pick. But if they don't, then another player will be selected, and that'll tell you who made this decision. Clinic, actually, I believe Eric, you saw Jared Clinic. Yes. Didn't you up in, or, or or you didn't you go up to a, a rainy game Kenosha? in Waukesha, Kenosha, Wisconsin? Yeah. Yeah, I spent a a cloudy, rainy weekend in Kenosha and saw a couple, saw a couple games. There may have mm-hmm. been some extra heat from the Mets there that might have contributed to us mocking the this pick. Um, What's for, so? I, I I believe that he's the the first uh, prep player on the board, isn't that right? Yes. The way the the way you have it construed most recently, um, which is kind of in its way. Uh, that's a that's a kind of. Uh, Notable designation. Um, so I guess what is he the is he the best prep player in the country? No, uh, we have him ranked second best, but it's a. I mean, we have high school players ranked six, seven, and eight are the first three, and then another mm-hmm. one at eleven, and another one at ten. So it's obviously a very close derby for that. He's sort of an alternative to this. The middle of the first round doesn't have college hitters like a typical draft would, and. Uh, this is one of the more stable, like, floored high school hitters in the draft, or at least it's generally seen that way. So teams looking at college hitters might look at Nolan Gorman or uh, Jared Kelnick as alternatives to, you know, un- otherwise unexciting college hitters. Uh, Jonathan India asserted himself up into this group throughout the season, but for the most part, there's a huge gap between these college hitters that we have going early and the ones that we uh, think we're going to start seeing mid to late um, in the first round. You know, if but, I were if I were interested in um, getting a sense of how you'd rank the high school players, you know what I would do? Go, I'd to, go to the, the board. The board. I'd go to the board. <laughs> to, uh, Carson, to to give you an idea of how infectiously the board has spread throughout the industry. Yeah. Is it more or less invasive than Japanese knotweed? To put it in horticultural you mean, terms, you mean kudzu? Is that is that what you're speaking of? Yeah, Japanese knotweed is like a has similarities to kudzu. Yeah. Kudzu's in the south. Yeah, I was, my my parents would we like drive past and be like, "What's that?" They're like, "Oh, it's everywhere." Someone brought it in one day, and now it's everywhere. I was like, oh, "Interesting." Yeah. <laughs> Which is what the board is like. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, <laughs> no, I was I was all right. So I'm not going to name drop, but I was talking to a general manager. And oh, yeah. he was just a, just a manager of some general things. Yeah, he just generally specific. manages things. And uh, <laughs> after yeah. we finished sort of talking about draft things, he was like, "So how would you rank them?" And then he cuts me off and goes, "Now I've seen what it says on the board in all caps." And I just kind of stopped and I'm like, "Oh my god, it's catching on. The, br- catching the branding on. is working." Yeah, the board. <laughs> Although it was sort of, um, it wasn't an excited tone that he struck. Mm-hmm. But no, it, no, it resigned. But it, but it was a yeah. knowing tone, so yeah. that's something. Yeah. Matthew, you guys have Matthew Liebertor uh, first among prep players, but uh, Nolan Gorman is a close second. Yes, yeah. and they're they're both from uh, Eric's general area, so he, he sort of overruled me there. He was like, no, 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 the first two prep players are from Arizona. I'm going to quit if that's not how this goes. Is he is Kalenic going to be a center fielder? Probably. Um, yeah, I think you try him there. Yeah, he's a guy that times out as a easy plus runner in the sixty, so mm-hmm. not in baseball terms. It, it grades out a little closer to a fifty-five runner in game times, but it sounds like he's good enough instincts. How is he different than Mickey Moniak, who went first overall two years ago? A little more physicality, 
actually considerably more physicality. Okay. Um, Kelly's old for the class. I'm not. I can't remember off the top of my head where Moniac was on the age continuum. Definitely more physical. Uh, and then obviously the the post showcase aspect of the evaluation is very different. Moniac was playing Southern California high school ball, not on a travel ball team that plays um, like weird scrimmages indoors and stuff in Wisconsin. Uh, so they were different to evaluate. And from a skills perspective, though, there's a lot of uh, perceived safety. Talk about how polished the bat is. Talk of uh, limited upside in part because of Kelnick's age and uh, him himself being kind of physically maxed out. So there are some similarities, but uh, they were evaluated very differently. Yeah, I'd say in tool terms, the hit grades are similar. Clinic lifts the ball in games more often and has more power. And Moniac's probably a little better runner and defender, uh, mm-hmm. but but also may not put on the weight uh, or add the loft to get to any more power in games, whereas Clinic already has it. So. I would say they're sort of comparable in overall ability, but there's so much optimism that that uh, attends a first overall pick. And so when Moniac was selected, obviously there were say, "Oh, this is very exciting. He's he's a he's a real talent. He's a real talent and asset for the game." One one assumes, and uh, it's not it's not my place whatsoever to shit on Mickey Moniac, right? Um, but but the point is, like, he, uh, as a professional, it does not appear as though things have come together for him yet, at least. Yeah, I saw they're both on the same Clearwater team that I've seen a couple times this year, um, playing center and left field. And you definitely get the impression from talking to pro scouts, and that also sort of agrees with what I've seen, that it's just not impact tools. Like, Hazley was eighth overall out of UVA, a college guy from last year. Uh, who had sort of a funky swing that he's cleaned up some, but he looks like it's like a 50-hit, 50-power left fielder that might need to be platooned. And it might be a little more offense than that, and he might be able to play center, but it's, it's just sort of you know a solid sort of everyday two-win guy. And Moniac looks like a above-average defender in center who's not going to hit for a lot of power and is just doing okay contact-wise, but will probably grow into more. And that's probably also like a two-win guy, you know, as like a likely scenario if it works out pretty well. And so when you go to see Clearwater, and you're like, oh, they got a number one overall pick and an eighth overall pick. And you're like, oh, there's guys that went in the third round a couple years ago that I think are this. Like, I saw them play Travis Blankenhorn, who went in the fourth round out of high school like three years ago, and essentially have them all evaluated in a similar area. And I think I probably like Blankenhorn more than both of them. Is the idea that just like that whatever's happening to Moniac right now, like even though it's not ideal, it's also something similar to what his floor was perceived to be at the time? So you're like, yeah, like he didn't. He doesn't appear like he's going to be a star, but at the same time, we were pretty sure he was going to be a two-win player, and that's what he is. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't perceived as like a number one overall talent. Right. He was perceived he as like, oh, he's a top ten guy that everyone likes to varying degrees, which is about what Klenik is. Some people think – sounds like the Tigers think he's like top three or four. It sounds like the Mets may also, and other teams think he's like eighth or tenth. Like I, I think they're they're similar. It's just the team that liked Moniac was picking first, and this year the team that likes Clinic also picking first. But there's one guy better than him, or maybe two or three. So, do we have any other big movers? Big movers between the two, and and you also, I believe you've also mentioned that the, uh, annoyingly, in my opinion, that since you released the mock draft on Friday afternoon, that within the last forty eight hours, there has already been there's also been movement. Yeah, bas- this happened, I think, the last two mocks we've had, that right after we posted two people, at least in my case, that I hadn't talked to in 24 hours before, and I, I figured we had sort of touched base recently enough, we're like, oh, you got one pick wrong. This guy just had two workouts for this team. He's going there. And and we, well, I guess we could say it's Connor Scott with the Marlins at 13, and we have a mock at 31. It would have been over slot at 31, and I think his his range was perceived as like, 15 to 20, so 13 isn't that far out of range. Uh, but, yeah, that, that, that's one big one that if we, if we could do it right now, which I guess we'll be doing it in the next 24 hours, he would move to 13, and then that would probably end up changing four or five other picks just on sort of the cascade effect. But you even said, although you, you did say, to, to be fair to the both of you, the Marlins have been tied to all kinds of players with Scott, Edwards, and Cassis, the three most, and you said Scott it seems to be having late momentum. It's not like we didn't have him in the mix there. We just found out he's probably moved to the front. 
the way all these teams in the middle of the first round are going to sequence everything is one of the things that we've had a harder time nailing down. Like Tampa and Kansas City, um, teams Arizona at 25, um, teams that have comp picks who we think are going to mix up what they do, college player, high school player, um, figuring out the way they, they sequence it is has been tough. So we've had like Miami on all high school players all spring. We're not sure who they think they like at 13 and who they might like later. We just know, we just have this group of names um, and sort of have to apply logic as to where uh, they like them. Uh, so like Blaze Alexander has like no chance. We have him attached to them. He's no chance of going so early that we'd like dare mock him at 13 to Miami. We think they really like him. But all the other names, it sounds like they'd have to hop on early. Scott's just, you know, one of those guys where it could be 15, it could be 40. Like, the range in which teams have him lined up is is pretty wide. And then this is an interesting thing. I'm curious what you would do in this situation, Carson. Is like, so for Scott, if he doesn't go by about 20, then he'll be well over slot. And, like, we know Cincinnati likes him at 47, which he probably won't get to. But if he gets there, he'd be way over slot. If we're working with a team like Kansas City or Tampa with a bunch of picks and a lot of money or a team like Kansas oh, right. City if we mock them with Scott who would be well over slot do you try to give them sort of you know they like these players we'll project them taking four of the six players we think they like or do you say well if they get these three it's probably going to be so over slot that they're gonna have to cut on their fourth one let's project the guy that doesn't belong there on talent and try to nail every pick or do you just try to you know follow where your um your information is and just assume they sort of take a version of best player available their first couple picks and then if that necessitates them cutting, they do it later, and we don't necessarily mock that. I think that the latter scenario is how you should handle it. Because otherwise, if, you, if, you're, if you're accounting for the fact that they definitely get those players that they've mocked earlier, or, or that for, for, for which you've mocked them earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Then, then what? Then you're, then you're, they're getting, you're, you're trying to assign them a way under slot guy. Who could be? Or couldn't it be anyone? Well, yeah. So Kansas City level? is the is the example I'm thinking of. So we have him at 18, taking Nick Schnell, which would be pretty close to slot, maybe a hair below. And then at 33, taking Groshans, who'd probably be a little above. Grayson Rodriguez at 34, who'd probably be a little above. If you also and, have a, if you can, and I, uh, if you have, if you could tell us who these people are, Nick oh, Schnell yeah. is a is Nick Schnell, high, high school center fielder. Yeah. Yes. And then Groshans is Jordan Groshans, third baseman, high school Texas. And then Kansas City taking Grayson Rodriguez, who is a high school righty from Texas. And then at 40, where's that last one? 40, we have him taking Kumar Rocker, a high school righty out of Georgia. He would be way over slot. Way over. And like he would probably want like top 15 money. And so if he's way over there and the three picks ahead of them are all slot to maybe a little above, somebody texted me and said, oh, they're not going to do those four in that order. I'm like, okay, but do I project them a third-round pick on talent at 40? Or or do I try to say these are the four guys they like? I'll guess they'll do these four. And if they're over, then they'll just you know cut in their third and fourth-round picks. Or or do I – you know because we don't have, like, dope that if they go way under at pick 40, it's yeah, going to be what, this fourth-round talent. Like. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that <laughs> right, one figured out. Nick, right. Yeah. Here's the statistically performing college pitcher they're going to take in round two and give, like, fifth-round money to. Yeah, so I, I guess – we're already going deep enough if we're going to project two full rounds. So do we do we try to like do we try to do what we think the teams would like to do, or do we try to be so specific that we're probably going to end up missing a bunch of picks? That's a weird. That's a weird category of player, right? The like the the senior sign, like the way under slot senior sign, who goes in like yeah, like a competitive balance round, even before the you know like before the second round has begun. He's just like yeah. If what that player sure. is good in is good at is narrow enough you can just sort of learn instantly what the team's preference for that type of selection is like what traits they they look for and when they're making that kind of selection so is it like uh could it, i mean like a left-handed reliever for example yeah quick or moving reliever really? like nick sandlin at southern miss that's like a sidearm righty with three pitch, three average to above pitches that should be able to start but because it's such a weird slot he's probably more of a reliever and a couple scouts have suggested he could be first of the big leagues from this class and be an eighth inning reliever like this summer mm-hmm. that would fit for like especially a contending team like say cleveland has a bunch of picks if they want to go way under in the comp or second rounds 
and save $400,000, like he would make a ton of sense. And they've done it in the past. I remember Kyle Crockett out of UVA was like a sidearm lefty that they sort of overdrafted and then he got to the big leagues pretty quickly. So they actually what about have a history Paco Rodriguez? Yeah, I think he was closer to slide. He also had a bunch of injury issues, but yeah, that sort of guy. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that's a question that isn't really talked about a lot. Also, since I don't think a lot of people are mocking 78 picks where you then have to, you know... Like, hey, like one, another some person said in the comments, which I know I'm not supposed to read them, but like, oh, you have this team taking three high school players. That's insane. They'd never do that, which, of course, any team could do that. But do we try to balance those things out if we think the team is focused on just sort of um, artificial balance by saying, oh, we got a high school pitcher and a college hitter. We balanced, which, you know, is, is silly, I think, in theory, but some teams operate that way. Or do we just try to give them players that we think they like and we might miss a few? I think some of it is just about the financial constant that the the college players provide as far as putting together doing the math for your draft pool. And we gave it makes a, you feel safer when you have that in place. During and the we put of a draft. lot of high school players because I think that's where the talent is in the twenties and thirties and early forties. And then toward the end of the second round, like from sixty three to seventy eight, we have like three high school players because I guess that sort of feels like the area where. Um, sort of quicker to the big leagues, more cost certainty, like that's your performance in a big conference. That sort of overtakes the, you know, 35th best high school player where you're not even necessarily sure what his number is. Like that seems like the area where that's going to start happening this year. There has to be also right, a threshold beyond which a high school player will just go to college, right? Yes, there's, that's another thing to consider. There was one player that we left out of the top 78 pick mock, uh, Mike Ciani, a center fielder out of uh, Pennsylvania High School that's committed to Virginia. And he was the William only sort Penn of guy. William Penn Charter School. Lovely. <laughs> he was the only guy that definitely should be in the top 78 picks on talent that we didn't put there. But there were two or three others that we did put in that we almost took out that some people told us, oh, that guy's not going to sign if he's going to that area to that team or or whatever. So that's yet another thing to try to balance, especially when you're going 78 picks is there's as many as, I don't know, six or seven guys in our top 78 that are high school players that very well may just not sign and not go in the top two rounds. And do you try to thread the needle and guess which ones it'll be? Like, or you can, I don't know, I've been talking too much, but you could talk about who those five or six players are. Well, I, I'm i not sure if, I think there are a couple guys who fit into this category who we're not even, I don't even think the players themselves are, are know that they're they fit into this category. There's just such an overwhelming, like the balance of talent in this year's draft uh, in this sweet spot where uh, players still get paid enough that they come out uh, is balanced in such a way that there are so many high school pitchers that are just not going to go during that time and they're going to end up past uh, where they can get paid what they want to get paid. And I wonder three years from now what the the college pitching crop is going to look like. like. It might be really interesting if uh, enough of these guys go to school, have three years of growth at their school and then like you know we already have Mike Vassell who's going to school um we think there's a non-zero chance that Kumar Rocker does although um some of the I don't know what you describe it as just like some of people have refuted that in the last couple days too like people think he goes uh before we have him mocked Kumar Rocker is a Kumar Rocker is a righty who's committed to Vanderbilt yeah, Siani's committed yeah. to Virginia. Yeah, Siani. Yeah, a lot of kids committed to Virginia. We have, uh, we think, have a chance to get to school. Siani um, and Vassal are, are both Virginia, and they they may right. be. And if we had to pick the top two that are most likely, it would be those two, and then Rocker would probably be third for Vanderbilt. And Mike Vassal, actually, uh, speaking of the board, <laughs> Eric and Kylie, that was a lot uh, of disdain. One, you did that correctly. <laughs> one one finds. Well, I manage things generally. I don't nothing specific. <laughs> All right, fine. I was talking to Carson. <laughs> one finds that uh, Mike Vassell uh, ranks. Uh, this is, I mean, it's a bit of a being John Malkovich situation here. He's he's ranked after Mason Denneberg, uh, a high school right-hander from from Merritt Island High School in Florida, and he's ranked just above Xavier Edwards uh, from North Broward Prep. High school committed to Vanderbilt, and yet Mike Vassell does not have a, he has no ranking. He's just uh, he's a he's just below sixteen, just above seventeen, and yet he's assigned no ranking. Yeah, I guess we decided since he is a top tier talent that we wanted to call out where he fits. Um, mm-hmm. But since he will not be drafted, as far as we've been told, uh, he's not in the draft pool. 
So we didn't feel like he should be ranked if he's not sort of eligible to be picked. But obviously people are going to want to know like where he ranks and all that kind of thing, and presumably right. he's now the... This situation is still kind of new, and we have some uncertainty around it. At least I still do. Um, but yeah, so Vassal was... Vassal's like this Northeast prep arm who was more advanced than is typical for a Northeast prep arm to be from a strike-throwing perspective and a breaking ball usage perspective. Um, finished his summer sitting like 93-96. And his season started late because of where he's from. It's cold up there in Massachusetts. No joke. He pitched for a month, then got hurt, then sat out another month, made two starts before the draft after he returned from injury. And after his first one, tweeted out a message and sent an email to all the scouts, uh, hey, don't draft me. Uh, But he had already submitted, as you have to do with um, before... 21 days before the draft, like all your medical stuff, um, which qualifies you for the draft. We've seen players in the past refuse to do that as a way of opting out of the draft in like an official capacity instead of just saying, hey, don't draft me, um, even though you're eligible and a team technically still can and like, you know, dare you to turn down three, three and a half million dollars, whatever it is. Um, but it seems as though Vassal can actually petition um, – in a way that does remove him from the pool officially. Uh, But we're not, you know, like this is new CBA stuff and we're not sure if he's done that or how he would know if he's done that in in an official capacity without someone from like MLB uh, telling us for sure. Teams have indicated that they've been sort of told, like, don't do it. But because um, Vassal's advisor is his father, who, as far as I know, has not represented other top draft prospects, um, he he may not have known. Hey, if I'm going to consider not doing this, maybe we shouldn't submit our stuff so that we can opt out automatically. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas an advisor actually probably wouldn't help you do that because it's a terrible idea, as outlined by Keith Law. <laughs> he wrote about how this literally helps nobody because um, now the family may have been offered five million dollars and they're just not going to know. Um, but also, if they were really interested in five million dollars, I'm pretty sure they would have picked an advisor by now. Um, so, and then also there's a whole different set of complaints about how UVA handles pitchers and how they may handle a guy who's already been hurt before and who have sort of mishandled Daniel Lynch this year at UVA by making him throw too many breaking balls and getting in borderline confrontations with him on the mound. Like, it just seems like a terrible situation that could have been avoided, but I mean, it's obviously not up to us to decide how these things go. Like Daniel Lynch. Yeah. Daniel Lynch. He may be the guy that's moved up the most in like the last month. He might be the guy who's moved up the most in the last, like, during the course of this draft cycle. This conversation? Yeah, he would have been a third rounder in, like, March, and now he's, like, a middle first rounder. Yeah, we think he's going to go in the Uh, 20s. So, yeah, basically in two months, he moved up, like, 60 spots. So this is, uh, um, in terms of, like, among the ranks of interesting sentences, uh, it's obvious from observing Lynch that he he isn't a fan of the Virginia pitching style, its characteristic mechanics and reliance on breaking balls. Yeah. I mean, I don't know any scout that even can tolerate it. I know we both think it's stupid. And it it sounds like I've been told by advisors that they've been advising their kids to not commit there. And I know one advisor that's advising a current advisee to uncommit from them. So, like, it's clearly getting around. I don't think the common baseball fan is aware of how much it is hated and how poor of a track record it has and how much it affects players in a negative way. But I have a feeling it's getting around now because I know one former UVA player told a mutual friend of mine that it sounds like <laughs> Daniel Lynch is not like how things are going. And you can like see him like confronting pitching coaches when they come to the mound. So, And I also have uh, – there's a minor league video coordinator here in Arizona who is telling me that one of their prospects who's from the University of Virginia and was a pitcher knows that Lynch has been defiant – uh, and wishes that he had because he's had multiple injury issues. <laughs> and there's a similar example of something they do that it's um, <sighs> dramatically different than other schools. It's like eighty percent of their pitchers do this this thing that people I guess call the squat, and the idea is that it engages your core, which already makes me want to vomit just hearing that sentence. Um, and like keeps you compact or whatever but basically like you set if you're like in the wind up you put your hand in your mitt and touch the ball and then you like squat and then oh, start your right. delivery like like that's somehow going to help you 
Um, mm-hmm. Often they're crossbody. Often they throw tons of breaking balls. Um, there's other sort of um, in-between starts uh, sort of uh, quirks that people don't love. Uh, their pitchers have gotten hurt at a little higher rate than usual. And do they do been towel couple- work? I believe they do that also. I think they do towel work. Um, there's also been a couple examples like Brandon Klein with the Orioles where they drafted him in, I believe, the compensation round saying, oh, we'll fix his delivery. And it took them two years to fix his delivery. And then after they did, he threw 100 and threw so hard that his elbow blew out. And, like, that's what this was keeping him from doing in college. He could have thrown 100 in college, but they basically had him throwing in such a way that if he finished his delivery completely, his face would be on the mound. But, you know, that was the way they wanted to do it. And then separately, they teach their hitters, including um, draft-eligible Jake McCarthy this year, to basically do the Stanford swing, which Stanford doesn't do anymore. They've got new coaches. They've moved on. Now Virginia has picked it up in addition to handling the pitchers like this. So, if, I mean, if they didn't have a history of winning and a good academic reputation, yeah. I don't know how they'd get any players. They, they really well, win, they, though. They've done quite a they've bit of a winning in, in, uh, in recent years, haven't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, and they recruit pretty well, especially in the Northeast and that sort of uh, mid-Atlantic area. Like, they recruit sort of regionally and get a lot of good players, which is, I think, the reason they keep winning is that you can you can turn a pretty good player into a little lesser of a player in sort of a long-term development sense, but maybe because, you know, defense is poorer in college and your bad bips higher, that if you just hit a lot of ground balls the opposite way, that's probably better in the short term. But there's also schools like Dallas Baptist, where every guy throws 95, four-seamer up in the zone, and everyone's trying to hit home runs, where it's a little better for your long-term development and also makes the team like more exciting and successful in like a specific way. Dallas Baptist. Uh, uh, that's uh, I believe it's uh, Ben Zobrist was a product of Dallas Baptist. True. I believe so. I actually, I'm not would anyone, about that one. would anyone like to confirm? Or, or deny? Not really a big deal. <clears throat> the uh, Northeast is an interesting place to recruit. It's, I think it's hard to sift through talent up there, but there's no, uh, like, banner program that's just uh like naturally collects everyone that comes out of the northeast and so like vanderbilt and north carolina and virginia go up there and i just think i think the way pro baseball interacts with scouting in the northeast is beneficial for colleges too there's just less confidence about players from the northeast than there is about players from other parts of the country in a way that i think hurts their standing as far as pro pro ball is concerned could you you explain maybe why boston college now boston college has actually produced some legitimate prospects in recent years. Like Chris Shaw, the corner outfielder who was, uh, what, in the Giants system? Is that right? Mm-hmm. boy now, yeah. Oh, yeah, by the way, Zobris went to Dallas Baptist, but it appears they were Division Two at the time. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's right. So so Chris Shaw went there, and then there was a... Wasn't there a pitcher selected either last year Justin or the year Dunn. Just, yeah, Justin Dunn. Just saw him in the He's a first-rounder, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. So, so they've produced some talent, but why don't they have, like, any player... From you know, like you know, Connecticut, Rhode Island, or Massachusetts or North, like why? How is that not? How's not all? Of, how are not all of the you know reasonable prospects going there? Yeah, St. John's um, gets some of them. UConn's had a decent run recently, but I, oh yeah, yeah UConn, I think there's. Point, yeah. I think it's sort of like the football uh, sort of thing, which is a lot of good players, even players in Southern California that could go to USC or UCLA, who are traditional football programs, go to the SEC. Because there's just so much money and sort of the TV and selling 100,000 tickets every week and the tailgating and the tradition and all that, that they just, you know, you go on a visit to Mississippi State. There's like kids from Southern California that go to Mississippi State, which aside from the the baseball facility, I don't know why they'd want to move to that part of the country, but it happens pretty often in Arkansas too. So I think Virginia, Virginia, Vanderbilt, North Carolina, you can be like, oh, well, UConn's a pretty, you know, pretty good academic school, maybe not quite to the standard of those three schools. Um, and they have a decent baseball team, but do you want to play in the College World Series? Because you're probably not going to do it if you go to St. John's or UConn or Boston College. And with those, I think schools, the baseball, the like the good baseball talent, high school baseball talent in the Northeast too, skews wealthy because you have to travel so much to cultivate your baseball talent if you live in the Northeast. So I think there's like uh, an overlap there of kids whose families have money they go to good schools already and i think that's why you see like north carolina vanderbilt coming up there and recruiting and a lot of those kids get to school because they don't need uh you know six hundred thousand they don't have to sign for six hundred thousand right. coming out of high school they can go to college and you know spend three years at vanderbilt and maybe it's 2.5 4 when they come out the other end that's another thing. These the schools that get the top talent on campus typically will go recruit a bunch of sophomores that come from well-off families that know they're going to ask for well over five hundred thousand dollars, which makes it even more likely they get to school. 
And so I think that's why they target the Northeast is that's a little, I'd say like suburban Atlanta and like the rich areas and like the Northeast are like two of the best areas to where there's a lot of players like that. To, and, and you can get them onto campus more easily. Yeah, which it, yeah. I've I've heard of specific teams uh, or colleges that have like specific strategies. Like it sounds like the Gators have decided we'll go recruit almost any pitcher in the country because any weird thing can happen with them to get them on campus. But for hitters, we're not going to go after the top three, four round guys. We're going to try to get a bunch of fifth or sixth rounders who might stay for four years and will perform from day one. And we don't care if we don't have a first round hitter, which is sort of what they've done the last four or five years, but they have a ton of pitchers. Um, and I think that's a pretty successful way. And if, you know, Florida specifically has a bunch of former scouts on their coaching staff, so they are a little more confident in their ability to recruit those sorts of guys. And any kid in the state of Florida can basically go for free, so they can save their scholarships for kids out of state. So they kind of have a, a huge advantage in trying to pick those players out. They can basically get whoever they want. It's been remarkable watching Tracy Smith, the head coach at Arizona State Baseball, try to figure out how to do it here at like this monster program. Because at Indiana, he sort of pieced together whatever parts from the Midwest that he had. Was he responsible for getting Vogelbach there? No, Kyle Schwarber. Oh, the yep, big white guys met. all look the same to you? <laughs> Schwarber <laughs> and, and Sam right Travis way. and uh-huh. Dustin DeMuth, who had um, a pro career in the minors with the Brewers for a couple years. Um, but, you know, he got to Arizona State, and then it was Bo Bichette and Reggie Lawson and, you know, all these guys that ended up signing. And now two years after those guys were supposed to sign, Tracy Smith is fighting for his job. Like the athletic director had to have a press conference here last week saying, hey, I'm going to give this guy one more year, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but right, as a, you don't want the best, you don't necessarily want the best commits. You want the commits who are most likely to come. Yeah, there's like some Goldilocks zone of, you yeah. know, family situations and talent and lo- locality and all this stuff that, I think it's when you're wielding the recruiting power of one of these huge baseball schools, like it take, might take you a minute to figure out how to do it. It's hey, the, so un- listen. the uncanny van- valley of signability. What if you were to contract uncanny valley fever? What would happen then? <laughs> You'd be in the Polar Express is what would happen. <laughs> you mentioned, we mentioned some of the Virginia guys about uh, possibly fixing a delivery. Uh, talk about Mick, Mickey Moniak about getting loft in the swing or not. Um, are there any players on the, the mock draft, the most recent ver- version of it, um, who, if they were to remain you know, more or less the player they are, would not be particularly impressive, but who possess a uh, greater um, – who possess a kind of uh, skill that could be unlocked by some sort of uh, mechanical change and w- might be drafted <coughs> to, you know, largely on the basis of that? Well, we kind of hit this topic already, but Jake McCarthy of Virginia is a good example. Uh, he's We have him at 49. It sounds like he'll go there a little bit ahead of there, uh, but he needs a swing change, and he's been hurt all spring with a broken wrist. So essentially, if you only scout, like most national scouts, only scout like basically the summer and then the spring, and he was used irregularly for Team USA in sort of a part-time role and never really got got going, and then missed almost the entire spring this year, and he needs a swing change. Um that's going to artificially sort of push him down um, in some of the same ways that I've talked about Trey Turner got pushed down. Like he wasn't good for those eight months leading up to the draft. Some teams got off him and then he got better late, but they weren't watching him anymore because they didn't have the history freshman and sophomore year to kind of know what he was capable of. So I think he's a guy that will definitely sort of get some of these adjustments in pro ball and has the tools to, you know, not be eligible for the fringe five, if you know what I mean. I'm familiar with that column. What a, what a column. I think Although Matt McLean seems like exactly your kind of guy, Carson. Oh yeah, McLean. I like McLean too, though. Where's McLean? Who's Matt McLean? He's uh, 63rd on the list. He's Southern California. We're gonna say second baseman. It's sort yeah. of second base, shortstop, center field, somewhere around there. But it's basically like a plus hit tool, and everything else is fringy. Um, but it sounds I think like he, he runs really well too. Oh yeah, no, he he does run. You're right. Um, and we're guessing second base, but it could be like you know a magical thing where he's okay at short, or maybe you move him to center field. Um, Although like sounds, everybody in the Rays farm system. Yeah, exactly, which I think right. we mocked yeah. to him in he's the second that round. that archetype. Yeah, he is exactly that archetype. But it sounds like he will. Be, uh, he has become a tougher sign for reasons we can't outline due to his eligibility. Um, <laughs> so if he doesn't go in the top 30 or 40 picks or get that kind of money, it, it may, he may, may end up going to school. He's one of those five or six guys um, in that top sort of 60, 70 of our list that may end up going to school. 
<laughs> two play two players after uh you, yeah you have the Rays you have Matt McLean and there's uh, Chris Bubich or Bubik or Bubich Bubik. from Bubik from Stanford and then uh the Kansas City Royals uh you have uh to them you have mocked a, a catcher from um a junior college of Texas and his name is Josh Bro Bro yeah which really a- is the it's really the name of of every ball player, I think. <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy that I believe is not yet, not still on Mississippi State, whose name was Kale Bro, which I thought really is just right there at the intersection of millennial culture and baseball culture. <clears throat> um, any any possible swing changers? I know that that's. Uh, yeah, so uh, Trevor Larnick at Oregon State, I wouldn't mess with it, but he's a guy with monster raw power who hits a lot of low lying line drives. Uh, there might be more in there, but I don't know. It's so natural and easy the way he does it right now that I don't think I would mess with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're Grayson, not a general manager, are you? Grayson Janista, the outfielder. Hey, I saw Grayson Janista. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. And I saw... Um, Wait, where? Why? <laughs> I saw him in Conine, too, at the, at the uh, Cape, the, on the Cape. Oh, I saw yeah. them accidentally. Yeah. It was like yeah. a Chipotle or something, or were they playing baseball? They were playing baseball. I was eating food though, because <laughs> I was at a Cape Cape C- game. Congrats! I was there with I was there with my dad and uh, my sister, my half sister who just graduated from high school. Some other assorted members of my family. It was a real summer catch situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you talk about these players, Eric? <laughs> Uh, uh, Janista. Sorry, I'm thinking about uh, Jessica Biel now. Uh, yes, Grayson All right, I'll Janista. take over. <laughs> Janista is this. Uh, we've comped him to like physically to late career Lance Berkman, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah. Well, he was a big old guy, and he was playing center field. And kind of uh, Adam Dunnish too. That's another guy. Like later yeah. Done. Uh, so Janista probably needs some sort of a swing t- tweak. He's got like a flat planed swing, which I could you could argue in a couple of years when the uh, the style of pitching that is like attacking you up in the zone with these high spin four seamers when that becomes more popular, that guys like Janista are in position to succeed with their flat plane swings as opposed to trying to incorporate more loft. Um, but like he's someone who maybe there's a swing change in there, and maybe there's a physical makeover that enables him to be okay in center field. Uh, even uh, he's an interesting guy. The guy after and him, then, Jordan Groshans, could probably stand to do it. And I'd also say yep. number thirty-seven, Nico Horner from Stanford, has some raw power and is sort of an overly contact line drive um, focused type player. Uh, and then, as far as pitching approaches go, Jackson Kowar at Florida. Uh, maybe there's something you alter about his stride direction or about um, the way he uses his lower half throughout his delivery that makes him more of a more effective as like a sinker changeup guy uh same with um, ryan rollison who has yeah. bad direction to the plate that has undermined his his command which he has had in the past and hasn't had this year so the team that takes him is going to think they can sort of fix him and unlock whatever ability has been sort of latent in college i'd say that's a good group of guys in the top 50 that uh need logan one, gilbert yeah, if you were going to be in some uh, outbrain ad and be like, one small tweak can change this prospect's life, it'd be those guys. Yeah, scientists are so mad. Yeah, about they it. hate this lady. <laughs> yeah, they do. They really do. Those scientists hate that lady. Did you know there's um, hot singles in your area, Carson? Yeah, I've been I've been made aware of that. Oh, one other um, thing I think we should talk about real quick is players that seem fringe five-ish that like may not be like top 100 quality, but we know you're going to love them. Yeah. Yes, but uh, <laughs> wait. I want to ask about a player who seems strange, and but maybe there are others uh, who, who fall into the same category. Uh, so, at number nine, you have Oakland Athletics taking uh, center fielder from South Alabama, Travis Swaggerty, right? Uh, but you write this is the first spot and only one for a while where lefty Shane McClanahan is in the mix, right? Mm-hmm. But then I think you don't right. have Shane McClanahan being selected until the 37th pick. So here's a situation where a team might actually consider taking a player, McClanahan, within the top 10, but then but then he doesn't actually he's not actually selected according to your standards which pre- suggests to me that he's not particularly 
valued by other teams until thirty uh, seventh. Why uh, why this about McLean in particular, and are there any other players who fall under this category? I guess with anyone who's fallen this this far, there's a confluence of things that have occurred. McClanahan, early in the year, stuff was much better than it was late. I mean, this is a lefty who was up to 100 earlier in the year. I saw him, Kylie yeah, saw I saw him his, opening weekend and wrote it up on Fangraphs.com and basically said this guy's going to go in the top five picks. Right. And then you saw him at the conference tournament, and he was... I believe is how I'd describe it. Two to four, no command had thrown 112 pitches by the fifth inning. Wasn't really using his um, off speed. It was inconsistent. It looked like he was sort of frustrated. And from the guys I talked to that had seen the last weeks before that, they were like, yeah, this is about what it's been. You should probably move him down. And then a couple weeks ago, I had spoken with a director about McClanahan specifically. This director picks between, let's say, picks 12 and 24. Wes Anderson. Who said, uh, <laughs> he said that... He's quirky. Um <laughs> Yeah. Was it Wes Anderson? <laughs> he was typing this on a, yes. on a, on a typewriter and yeah. mailing it by carrier pigeon. Yeah. He sent it. It was a very – he framed his argument for this very symmetrically. Um, <laughs> a lot of yellows but and greens. he essentially – he told me, he's like, we feel like this guy might fall to us now because people are concerned he's a reliever, but we don't have enough time to, like, get in and see him in a way that's going to make us comfortable with him. So there are all these teams between 10 and 25 that early in the year would have would have never have imagined McClanahan got to them. And now it turns out he's going to, but they don't have enough looks that they're comfortable seeing him. Or the ones that they did get late in the year were terrible. And so he's just going to fly past them to the teams that saw McClanahan early because they had reason to and still have reason to like him. So we think Oakland is one of those teams that saw him really, really good. They also saw his best, uh, uh, his last best start uh, against Memphis, mm-hmm. one of their top guys who may have some sway in the room, which is part of the reason why we think they, they're still on him, especially if it'll be you know, at a well below slot bonus in an area where they're not sure who they like and all those sorts of things. So we think he goes in an area where there are these teams who look at the board and say, huh, that's weird. We decided we didn't like McClanahan as much as, you know, Nolan Gorman, Alec Baum, Travis Swaggerty, whatever, weeks ago. But we're also kind of shocked that he's still here. So let's take him. And that's ultimately where we think he's going to end up going. And I was someone somewhere like that. I was told he'll go in the 20s, maybe early 30s. So even us having him at 37, yeah, it's probably lower than he will go. He's one of those guys where there were just enough guys ahead of him. We're like, well, this team's taking from this pool of three or four players. But we don't necessarily know what teams after like 15 even like McClanahan. So he just kind of slid to Baltimore where it's like, okay. Because he was the, never – because he wasn't an option. He didn't seem to be an option. At, at, at yeah, and like point. weeks ago, I'm not even sure if these teams knew if they would take McClanahan. So it's like obviously harder for us to know because a lot of our intel comes from who's at what games and who has who in a workout. And obviously they don't have guys at the games three weeks ago and you can't have a college player in a workout since he's still playing right now. Um, so that's a tough one to guess. I, I would say like the over-under if we were trying to project where he would go would be like 25 and a half probably. Something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, I would also say when Eric was outlining the scenario where essentially a guy slides 15 picks because those teams weren't prepared to watch him, this is what happened with Jabba Chamberlain, where he was projected as like a top 10 or 12 pick, and then he went 30-something, I think, to the Yankees. And he slid out of the top 10 or 12 because there were concerns about his elbow and his knee, which ended up, I think, both giving him trouble later in his career. So they were, you know, well-founded. But then I was with the Yankees that year, and when we took Chamberlain, I was like, I can't believe he got here. What happened? And one of the guys was like, oh, well, the teams ahead of us just weren't prepared to make a decision on him. Like, they didn't know until the week before the draft when they saw the medicals that this guy might get here, and they just didn't see him enough to take him. And we had seen him enough, and so we were capable of taking him. Last question. Uh, and Well, and to your point about the French five types, what I would submit is that we save that conversation for – um, our next, the, our next episode together, uh, which will probably also cover some later rounds. Does that does that seem fair? You're thinking like yes. after the first day, before the second day, kind of thing. <laughs> you want to try to squeeze all that stuff in? I'm not thinking that. No. <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> when does your but, son taking another nap, Carson? He's, I mean, like maybe after the draft is over. However, here's here's my real last question, which is. What about what club do you have the least sense? Um, like you, you know, just by virtue of logic and the players who'd be available, you, you've been able to conjure up some names. But uh, you're, you're just you're like, yeah, that's that's what logic would dictate. But we don't necessarily know. 
I would say the combination of the top, uh, you know, seven to ten teams sort of um, taking up all of the hot air that's being <laughs> expelled about this draft is about who's going to go in the top ten because it sounds like the top six, maybe seven or eight have been settled about now. Um, and then those teams, based on who they pick, will dictate how much money they have. And then essentially they get to pick next because they have the most money. So a player that should go 15th on talent, if they can offer him 12th overall money at what their second pick, around 30, they can get that player. So it seems like a lot of the talk has been top 10 and then like 25 to 45. And so mm-hmm. that then leaves that you know 15 to 22 range where it's like in between those two ranges and they're basically waiting to see whose price becomes affordable, who's not trying to get floated down to the 30s and 40s, and then who didn't get taken in the top 10 or 12. And so because those teams probably even now don't even have a great sense of who's going to be there, we obviously don't have a great idea. We know where they've been and what kind of players they've taken in the past. And, you know, if they're making calls on players, it eventually finds their way to us. But I'd say in that sort of 19 to 22 area where you have St. Louis, Minnesota, Milwaukee, and Colorado – we have some names, but there's not a ton of confidence on who they'll take. Although that those is the teams, exact range I was going to mention. Those teams tend no, to be value no feel. tend to be value focused and not one specific demographic. So it's easy to just sort of give them the best available player who might not should be at that pick because um, that's probably what they're going to do. But it's not yeah, like, now one of those players. Twenty one is Larnack. Is that how you say it? Larnack? Uh, Trevor yeah. Trevor Larnack. He's the guy with the the excellent raw power. You have him mocked to the Brewers at twenty first overall. The first. Um, so we'd already mentioned him. The first team in that series is the Cardinals. You have Ryan Rollis, who's a lefty from Old Miss there. And they have a bit of a track record of taking a sort of college pitcher with a flaw or two that they think they can fix. And he also okay. sort of fits in that range Which and they fits have. that sort of player. Uh, Bruce, uh, sorry, sorry, help me with the last name here. Bryce. Bryce Terang. Bryce Terang. You said uh, he was a possibility for 1-1 last year. Yeah, he just basically in that sort of 12-month period where he's getting scouted a lot by everybody, hasn't been very good, but he looked like he would go number one overall every event before that 12-month period. And mm. he was high-profile enough then that he was at the events everyone was scouting, and they were like, oh, these guys look fine, but that guy, Tarang, for next year, he looks real good. So like he was scouted by national scouts um, sort of before that 12-month period. Uh, and he also, if you just sort of plug his tools into like a um, – you know, a draft model, they're going to come out pretty good. And you've probably got reports from two summers ago. So the teams that sort of value track record and sort of being famous and having a nice tool set and things like that, which typically are model-based teams, uh, these, uh, I'd say Toronto, or sorry, uh, Minnesota and Milwaukee both sort of fit that profile. And they're both value-based, and this is about the spot where he comes up as a really positive value. So Cardinals at 19, Twins at 20, and Brewers at 21, those are... And the Rockies for you at in the Rockies at twenty two, but I don't necessarily. Um, I guess what's convenient about those first three teams is that they they do seem to have. Um, they seem to have similar. They tend to be among the more progressive teams at this point. Yes, um, the Twins kind of new to that club, um, whereas the Rockies are they remain quite opaque, I guess, in, in their decision making. And we've mentioned this in the mock, but they're, one of their biggest amateur characteristics is they basically don't draft pitchers unless they throw a sinker, uh, and Jackson Coward does, and fits in that general range, and, um, you know, it makes some sense. But it's, I think he's great value there. Yeah, and that, we've had people tell us, I think we mocked Coward in the late 20s at one point, and they're like, I don't know who's taking him, but he's not going to last that long. So I think it's yeah. a bit of a McClanahan thing where it's like, well, we don't know exactly where he goes, but he probably fits in this sort of area, and somebody that we may not expect be expecting will probably jump up and take him. <clears throat> All right. Well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Target with my family. We got to go. To, we have to get some patio chairs. Are we going to keep recording during this? Another seat base. Kylie and I will just keep talking. While yeah, another yeah, base going. for our car seat. Um, and then I'm going to come home and uh, and then I don't going to be going to record the introduction for this so it'll be up it'll be up tonight are you going to take out all the f words you mean fringe five (laughs) they're offensive to many yeah they are yeah they are we'll be live chatting during the draft so if you're listening to this uh monday during your commute to work or during work uh, or after or just after work but not too late after work kylie and i will be talking 
uh, we'll be chatting on the site during the draft. The, when does the draft and, begin? Uh, is it seven on seven on Monday night? Seven p.m. I believe the broadcasters said I think the picks are at eight though, uh, or maybe it's six and seven. There's an hour in there somewhere. But we'll also add more names to the draft board, too. Probably not any that are going to go on day one, but there's going to be a lot more names. Yeah. In fact, it might be smart to add them like, hey, it's day three. Now there are a bunch of names on here that we like that might, we're going to go today. Check it out. Yeah. So this is good. This is a doubling as an editorial meeting right now. Yeah. How are we going to get rid of Carson? You should go Eric? to Target. <laughs> huh? How are we going to get rid of Carson? I mean, now that we're in this editorial meeting, we can, we can talk mutiny. Yeah. Seems like a good topic uh, of conversation. Maybe uh, we'll kidnap his son. We'll continue that offline. For the moment, though, what I would like to say is uh, that you fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio, an obligation I never really thought you had, but I guess... <laughs> I guess, you, I guess you, you, you fulfilled your obligation. I No, I haven't yeah. fulfilled my obligation yet, because I have to edit it. Oh, yeah, you that's right. dicks. This <laughs> <laughs> is a mature conversation. <laughs> Eric... I love you. Kylie, you have also appeared on the program. Thank you so much. <laughs> that has been that has been Kylie McDaniel. Or no, I should say, I'll do it in this order. That has been uh, Eric Longanegan, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. Kylie McDaniel, lead prospect analyst emeritus for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>